to make a sinful one like me your chosen precious child. Well, that song <clears throat> is very fitting for today's message because we're going we're gonna to see why God shed his blood for us. And um, actually, a lot of these songs were, were very fitting for uh, today's message. And um, uh, <clears throat> again, it's just uh, uh, providential when um, you know, a lot of times we, sometimes we don't communicate, you know, who's doing the music and the message, what the message is, but <clears throat> they all seem to come together. Um, have you ever woken up with a bad attitude? Like you just, I don't know, you just, somehow you wake up and you just don't feel <clears throat> happy, um, I guess. Um, or maybe you didn't wake up with it, but um, once the day gets going, uh, your mind starts to run away with thoughts of all the things that are going a certain way, and that certain way is uh, not the way you are wanting them to go. And uh, to make matters even worse, then your brain starts to remind you um, that many of the things that aren't going right are because of the bad decisions that you made. And um, uh, I'll admit that that happens more often. <clears throat> To me than I than I want to admit, but um, but that happened to me yesterday. You know, I uh, I knew that yesterday I had to spend the whole day to get ready to prepare for this message, and and I just my mind was just racing with with these thoughts of like things aren't going the way <clears throat> I want them to go, and I just had this like unsettled um, anxiety in my heart, and then. Um, on top, top of that, I, I went to get the mail and uh, started, I don't know why, I mean, there were some bills there and I don't know why I opened them, but I opened them and one of them was the gas bill and I think you know what I'm talking about when you opened your gas bill. I mean, I think uh, gas companies raised the price of gas about double what it was last year. So um, that made matters even worse. <clears throat> and um, so then I just had to stop and take a walk and this that's... This is something that, that I do, and I hope that you all have a plan for when that happens to you, but I just take a walk and talk with the Lord, and you know, I was like, I cannot come back home until God gives me peace, because I cannot, um, I cannot even think about preparing a message um, uh, until God settles my anxious heart and I'm back focused on him. So, <clears throat> um, so he did that. And, um, and, you know, God sets all things right. And so that was great. But uh, I say that because, you know, we're going to talk about trials, temptations, suffering today. And we talked a little last week about how because of sin, um, we're broken people living among broken people in a broken world. And if we live in an imperfect world with imperfect people, you know, we just cannot, we can't be naive to the fact that suffering will be a part of this life. We know full well that suffering is an inescapable part of being human, and yet um, there are still times <clears throat> that we have a hard time making sense of it. You know, sometimes the, the um, emotions, you know, the... the the emotion of pain that we feel um, in going through suffering can, can blur our vision. 
Um, it can confuse our minds. And it can even shake our faith. Some people, it shakes their faith to the point of they, they give up their faith altogether. Um, the New Testament consistently connects the sufferings, though, that we endure to God's overall plan of redemption. It's a strategic part of how God is redeeming us, his people. In fact, it is through suffering and death that we'll see this morning that God the Son, Jesus himself, enters our pain and delivers us from it forever in the end. So last week we left off with Hebrews 2.9, which said this, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So the author of Hebrews is now going to take this suffering theme and run with it to the end of the chapter. And um, it's important for our endurance and to our faith remaining unshaken and to our remaining holding fast to Christ that we understand the level of connection that we have with Jesus in suffering. He has entered into our suffering to strengthen us in it and to rescue us from it. I'm sure that most of you at one time or another have either been um, on the giving end or the receiving end uh, of entering into the suffering of another and experiencing it in order to help them through it. Or you have been the recipient of a dear friend entering into your own suffering. You know, as you've experienced those things, you know that that kind of love is powerful because it involves the commitment to sometimes even have to experience some of the pain ourselves as we walk side by side with those that we love. Well, that's the kind of committed love that God has shown to us, and we will see that in this passage this morning. So we're going to look at three things from today's passage <clears throat> that explain how God has chosen to use the vehicle of suffering to connect us to Jesus. First, we will look at how he made us his children through Jesus' suffering. Then we'll see that he has delivered us from death through Jesus' suffering. And finally, we will see that Jesus is now our merciful and faithful high priest through his suffering. And because of that, he walks with us and gives us strength in our suffering. So let's first consider how we have become children of God through his suffering. We see this in verses 10 and 11, <clears throat> which says this, For it was fitting that he that is God, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation, that is Jesus, perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he, being Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise." Now, when the writer of Hebrews says it was fitting, what he means there is he's saying it was appropriate. Um, and the one he's speaking about is God himself. He's saying it was appropriate for God to make Jesus perfect through suffering. And when it talks about him being made perfect, that is Jesus, that word perfect doesn't mean sinless. Um, <clears throat> it's uh, talking about, it's the word um, uh, teleos uh, in the Greek, or which really means like the, the, the end of a goal or um, the idea of reaching a goal or finishing something or seeing something through to completion. It's not that 
Jesus was made sinless through his suffering because he's already sinless. Um, so um, it's speaking about Jesus reaching the goal of becoming the Savior of the world and becoming exactly what we all needed to fulfill God's purpose for him. So that was the purpose of God's plan for him. And I would dare say that we don't often think of the trials and sufferings that we go through in our lives as part of a master plan of God. Um, at least maybe not initially, you know, something happens in the course of a day. And I mean, my typical reaction is, <clears throat> you know, <laughs> and not thinking like, hey, this is part of God's master plan. Um, uh, but in the same way that Jesus trailblazed the way for us to follow him to glory and achieve the goal of God fulfilling his purpose in him, he had to suffer. And in the same way, we will suffer. Um, Jesus achieved the goal by going through the experiences of suffering that God had planned for him. And in the end, he achieved the goal, as it says here, uh, of bringing many sons to glory. So through Jesus, God created sons and daughters of God, ones who have been born again with new life in Christ. And God changes the very disposition of our hearts. Now, when you think of that, that's just a phenomenal thing um, if you think about it, because you know we, we are sinners by birth and by choice, and, and the Bible says we are dead in our sins. So what's in our DNA is to sin and rebel against God. But through Jesus, he causes us to be born again, to become children of God who now bear his characteristics. He gives us the Spirit of God to do this work. And so the saving work of Jesus produced many sons and daughters of God. Verse 11 goes on to talk about our sanctification. said, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Um, you know, sometimes as children of God, we can get all intellectual uh, in our thinking about, uh, especially, you know, what is God's will for my life? You know, there's been multiple books written, this, you know, God's will for your life. And... Um, I don't know that we're going to know everything about God's will, but I can tell you that there are a number uh, of things that we do know about God's will because he flat out tells us in his word, right? And here's one of them, your sanctification. It says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. So, you know, instead of like thinking all of these intellectual things, what is God's will? What does he want me to do? You know, I mean, there's, there's just a number of verses that just flat out declare this is the will of God. Um, you know, sometimes I'm afraid that people will come to church and then, you know, whenever we're talking up here and sometimes I'm sitting out there, you know, I'll hear a big word from the pulpit and, you know, like sanctification, right? And then people will go away like, I don't even know what they're talking about. Um, so sometimes like we, we use... Uh, words that like, I feel like we need to explain. And um, uh, so I really like this definition from this theologian, F.F. F. Bruce, which is true, and I'm going to read it to you, um, but then I'm going to read another uh, definition of sanctification that I came across that kind of almost brings it down a little bit more, <clears throat> uh, maybe to our level or to an elementary level. But F.F. Um, F. Bruce said this about sanctification, Sanctification is glory begun, and glory is sanctification complete. And I really, I really like that because I think that's true. 
Um, but another um, definition I heard about sanctification, like I said, kind of brings it down to more on an elementary level, is this. Sanctification is God's will for you to be set apart as a proof of your salvation that is both progressive and practical in your life. So God started this process of sanctification when he infused you with his life at the point you were born again by believing the gospel. And at that point, we were set apart. Uh, We've been adopted into God's family um, as sons and daughters. And now he is working in us to become more and more like Jesus. Philippians 1.6 really sums it up uh, very concisely. And that says this, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So the process has already begun when we are children of God. God is Father to God the Son. And through Jesus, God has made us sons and daughters. And therefore, Jesus' brothers and sisters. That is why he is not ashamed to call us brothers. Verses 11 and 12 together then, I'll read them again, go like this. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Now the writer of Hebrews here is quoting a quote from Psalm 22. And that psalm starts with, um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, which primarily is a, is a psalm about suffering. Um, it's a psalm of David um, who's speaking about suffering, and Jesus even quotes this um, from the cross. You know, Jesus is the ultimate suffering servant of the Lord, and by putting this reference to his brothers in the mouth of Jesus, which comes later in the psalm, the writer of Hebrews makes clear that Jesus' suffering has deep meaning and it was not in vain. So through suffering, he brought us into sonship with God. And through suffering, he made us his brothers and his sisters. The parallelism here is that the brothers in the congregation, um, the church, are the same people. We're the same people. So born-again members of the church are brothers and sisters of Jesus, God's Son, now you want to think about that <clears throat> as you look into the faces of the people around you. Think about that as you look into the mirror in the morning, getting ready for the day, that you are a child of God. That in this local body of Christ that we call Liberty Hills Bible Church, you are interacting with those who are sons and daughters of the King of Kings. Um, and as we participate in each other's lives in this, in this local body, we should participate in a way that acknowledges and that is consistent with that. Um, oftentimes, many of the problems that happen in churches is that um, in terms of relationships especially, is um, that someone has forgotten who we actually are. And, um, and yet as we recognize ourselves as children of the Heavenly Father, we should treat one another as part of the family and that's why there ought to be an affection for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So after citing words from David in verse 12, the author of Hebrews turns to the book of Isaiah and quotes from chapter 8 in the book of Isaiah um, from verse 13. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. 
My mouth's getting dry, so I'm going to get some water. <clears throat> but I'm going to give you a pop quiz. I, I'm sure many of you have read through Hebrews before, and you go and you get to this part where the author of Hebrews just starts quoting these Old Testament verses. Um, have you read this before and you're just like, I have no idea what he's talking about? You know, I mean, just be honest. Uh, I'll be honest if you're not. Um, every time up until I had to prepare for this message, I had no idea what he's talking about. Okay, I just read those things and go like, okay, but then I just move on to something that makes sense to me. Um, so I did look into it, <clears throat> and you all might know, because you might have one of those great you know, study Bibles that has the notes at the bottom that tell you exactly what it means. <clears throat> so we'll see if what I um, say might line up with something that you already know. But um, to understand what he's talking about, the people, uh, you know, he, and, and this writer obviously believes that these people know the Old Testament scriptures pretty well, and that's why he quotes the, them to them so many times. Um, but the people would have had to know, first of all, that he was quoting from the book of Isaiah, because he doesn't say it. Um, and then they would have had to know some context about the book of Isaiah. Um, so Isaiah prophesied primarily regarding salvation, but the king at the time and the people paid him no attention. But nonetheless, he vowed to maintain his trust in God to fulfill his saving promises. You could call Isaiah the evangelist for his generation um, to Israel. Then when he is talking about I and the children God has given me, Isaiah completes that sentence. You have to go back to Isaiah 8 to see this. The actual phrase continues, says, I and the children God has given me are signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. And I don't know if you knew this, but, um, and actually I didn't, like I said, until just, you know, a couple days ago. Um, the names of Isaiah and his children actually declared, he gave them names that declared the truth about God to an unbelieving generation. In fact, Isaiah's name means Yahweh is salvation. And I'm not going to start reading the names of Isaiah's children because Mayor, I mean, just Mayor Bahal Shabazz or whatever. I mean, just <clears throat> lots of different names. But they were, um, in essence, uh, he's declaring the character of God and his faithfulness through the names of his children. And the meaning of the names of Isaiah's children were almost like many sermons to the people of his day. Well, just as Isaiah's children were living messengers of God's gospel of salvation, so we, who are the children of God, through the saving work of Jesus, are gospel messengers to the world. And we carry that message through our transformed lives. We are being sanctified by the divine power of God himself, and he is changing us so that we might display to the world the way of salvation and the God who brings it just like Isaiah's children's names were, were displaying to their generation um, certain things. Um, a passage I memorized many years ago is 2 Corinthians 2, 14-16, and um, I highly recommend memorizing it, but I, but I really love the way I memorize it in the New American Standard. Um, but once I memorize a verse, I like reading it in different other translations, and 
came across this translation in the Phillips um, translation, and it says it like this. Thanks be to God who leads us wherever we are on his own triumphant way and makes our knowledge of him spread throughout the world like a lovely perfume. We Christians have the unmistakable scent of Christ, discernible alike to those who are being saved and to those who are heading for death. To the latter, it seems like the very smell of doom. To the former, it has the fragrance of life itself. The reason I love that verse is because if you just, if you just think about your life, I mean, if you're a child of God, you are always, you are putting out this fragrance, you know, I mean, wherever you are, in your home, in your workplace, uh, in your neighborhood, um, wherever you are, and before your children, you know, um, before your family and friends. And um, it, it's, it's an unmistakable scent of Christ. It says, discernible alike to those who are being saved and to those who are heading for death. So um, that's why uh, that verse means so much to me, because it just, it, it, it really, it, your life has purpose, your life has meaning, and as you're walking through, you are giving off, you know, this fragrance. Um, <clears throat> so if you are a follower of Jesus, it would do you well every morning when you wake up and as you go through your day to keep reminding yourself that you're a son or a daughter of the God of the universe. Um, and it's really easy to forget that. I understand. It's easy to think about ourselves in relation to other people or to our job or to our successes or failures or to our illnesses or our health, or to think about ourselves with lesser identities than our true identity, which is a grand identity that we are a son or daughter of the King of Kings. If you think about the close relationship that Jesus showed that he had with his father, you know, you just look at his prayers, you look at how he relied on God the Father and talked about God. Well, his suffering has opened the door for us to join him in that closeness to God as our Heavenly Father, too. We are his children, and we are part of his family. And we want to live that way, and we want to think that way, and we want to trust that way, even in times of suffering. I just want to close this first section by emphatically saying that trials and suffering in our lives is not a mistake. And it's not happenstance. It was not in Jesus' life. It was part of God's master plan. And it's not in our lives. It's part of God's master plan in our lives to make us who we need to be on this earth for the people around us. Listen as I share these lyrics from a song that expresses this truth. This is, we might sing this song um, <clears throat> someday because I, I thought about the lyrics of this verse just yesterday. It's called Rejoice in the Lord. Some of you might be familiar with it. And <clears throat> these lyrics are just so true. God never moves without purpose or plan when trying his servant and molding a man. Give thanks to the Lord, though your testing seems long. In darkness, he gives a song. Oh, rejoice in the Lord. He makes no mistake. He knows the end of each path that I take. For when I am tried and purified, I shall come forth as gold. 
I could not see through the shadows ahead. I like this phrase right here. You know, when we can't see through the shadows ahead. So I looked at the cross of my Savior instead. I bowed to the will of the Master that day. Then peace came and tears fled away. The example I shared at the beginning, the story I shared at the beginning, that's what I did yesterday. And, and peace came and my anxiety fled away. Now I can see testing comes from above. God strengthens his children and purges in love. My father knows best and I trust in his care. Through purging more fruit I will bear. Oh, rejoice in the Lord. He makes no mistake. He knows the end of each path that I take. For when I am tried and purified, I shall come forth as gold. What's interesting is the, <clears throat> the words of the song says, um, God strengthens his children and purges in love. <clears throat> and um, um, that word purges, you know, I never really knew what it meant. But um, so at my workplace, we do a lot of purging. Okay, <laughs> so if you think of like uh, this container here, and um, let's just say there's some electronics inside that... Uh, you want to last for 30 years, right? Uh, you need to get out all the air in this bottle so that things don't oxidize over time. So we purge, um, we backfill, we, we purge out the air and we backfill it with helium, something a gas like helium, an inert gas, so that like, you know, those electronics are always sitting in, 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 in a gas that, um, you know, is not going to harm them. So, Purging is like God's process of getting out the bad and filling with the good. And if you think of, you know, the sanctification process, you can just think of like as we, God wants us to become more and more like Christ. You know, this is why there's this purging process because he's trying to pump out the bad and backfill with us to become more and more like Jesus. The second thing that we learn from this passage is he delivered us from death through his suffering. And, you know, the first song we sang, death was arrested, just, just nailed this point. Um, in verses 14 and 15, it says this, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What it's saying is that since we who have been made children of God are flesh and blood, if God the Son is going to be connected with us, he has to take on flesh and blood too. Jesus can't just appear to be human. He must be human in every way. He must be born and he must die for that's what all of us humans are going to experience. I think it's interesting to look at the story here <clears throat> um, about how God did this. Um, you know, God created all things. He created creativity. He created all. He created story, and I'm using that like as a noun. He created story. Um, I mean, I don't know about you, but I feel like the best movies, right, are the ones where the main character is just doing their thing, and then all of a sudden, 
um, things take a turn for the worst, and it appears that all is lost, and their back is against the wall, okay? Then, boom, things take another turn, and the main character saves the day. You know, that's, that's a, that, that storyline is very common in a lot of movies, okay? Um, well, God created the creativity that mankind has, and, and that story just resonates with, with humans. Well, that is the story that, that God created with Jesus. The, the, the paradox in God's plan of salvation for us is that Jesus experienced death in order to neutralize death. It's like, it's like it took the devil by surprise. It, it looked as if death had won and Jesus had lost, along with everyone who was trusting in him as the promised Savior, but just the opposite was true. To conquer death at the tomb, Jesus first had to die at the cross. His apparent defeat was a necessary path to victory. And that's what verses 14 and 15 are teaching us, that through death, Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death, as it says, were subject to lifelong slavery. Um, I think slavery to what? I mean, in the context here, I'm thinking slavery to, to fear, to fear of dying, maybe. And maybe there's other things too. Um, but people fear death, you know, not just because they are afraid of the experience of dying. I don't know anybody who is looking forward to that. You know, we, we don't know how the end is going to come for any of us in this room. So that's a little bit... Um, there's some apprehension there. Um, but if you are a child of God, we are free from Satan's accusations to shame us of guilt and to cause us to be terrorized by the God of just, justice. And we absolutely should no longer fear death from that aspect. We sang in Christ alone last week, um, and it had these words, no guilt in life, no fear in death. Why? Next line. This is the power of Christ in me. There is so much fearfulness in our culture of all kinds of things. There's, um, and yet Romans 8 would teach us that nothing in life, and not even death itself, can separate us from God's eternal love. So what are you afraid of? If God is for you, who can be against you? People who belong to Jesus, whatever they suffer... Whatever fear is gripping the culture in which they live, you know, there was a lot of fear going on during COVID. People who belong to Jesus ought to be people who are characterized by courage and boldness. Um, looking back on that time, you know, I, I think I said this one time in a, survey, in, a, in a service, but coming out of COVID, I just, you know, I wish I had responded differently, you know, in... in um, having courage and boldness through that time. Um, um, but because we don't live for a world that is passing away, you know, um, we can have courage and boldness in, in tough times. We are citizens and heirs of a forever kingdom that is reserved in heaven for us and can never fade away. Um, and... Um, in fact, I, I just uh, 
I want to share the verse in 1 Peter. Uh, David and I were talking this week, and, and this verse came up. Um, again, another great verse to memorize, um, to, just <clears throat> to just give you hope. 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Jesus neutralized the power of Satan's accusations by wiping clean the sin record of every person who relies on Jesus to save them. He removed death's legal claim on us. So with no crimes on the books, there could be no death sentence. And with no death sentence, fear should melt away and be replaced with the expectant joy of living forever with the people of God in the presence of God. Death could not hold Jesus, and if we are in Jesus, death cannot hold us. And again, it's interesting that like, um, no collaboration, but, but um, the verse David came up with uh, in one of the readings was from 1 Corinthians 15. It's not the same passage, but it does come from 1 Corinthians 15 that I'm going to read from verses 20 through 22, and it says this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. And I like it says, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. That was Jesus Christ, the God-man. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, first fruits are just the first part of the harvest. You know, you go out and you, you get the first you know, things off the tree. Um, but it, that, what that means is more harvest is coming. And we are the more of that harvest. Um, why do they call it falling asleep? Because death isn't permanent. Um, that's a typical term used in the New Testament. That's why Paul wrote to Timothy um, in, in, the, in the book of 2 Timothy, which you know, Paul knew was, was near the end of his life. Our Savior Christ Jesus has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Why is the gospel called good news? Because death doesn't win. Um, I mean, every person we ever know, right? I mean, if we're just thinking logically here on the earth, um, every person we ever know, we end up saying goodbye to. So it looks like death wins every time, does it not? But the gospel says, no, death doesn't win. So if you think of loved ones you know were trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ to save them, like I said last week, last breath here, first breath in heaven. Christ has defeated death, and if you're in Christ, you'll defeat death too. And um, obviously, I stole that phrase from someone, last breath here, first breath in heaven. But like when I die on my dying bed or however it happens, I mean, I want family members to know like he just closed his eyes here. Next time he opens them, they're in heaven. Took his last breath here, but split second later, next breath in heaven. You know, I mean, there's, there is no like pining away over this body that's there. You know, we go to 
to viewings and things. And I understand how we do that to help through the grieving process. But there, there's nothing there. You know, I mean, if you're a believer, so it's just a a body, you know, and and so um, there's just, I can't remember, well, I'm not, I won't find it, but the verse that Paul uses in Thessalonians where he's encouraging those um, about um, not being fearful of death, it's just very encouraging, kind of like, I think it's something about like, why are you sorrowful or something, or we don't need to be sorrowful because of these things that we we're just talking about. But um, I'll go to number three. The third thing that I said we should see today is that Jesus became our merciful high priest through his suffering. <clears throat> so we're here in verse 16 now of Hebrews 2. Um, so we're almost near the end. Three verses left. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. We'll talk about propitiation again. That's another one of those big words, churchy words, right? You know, biblical words, but we'll, we'll explain it. God the Son did not become an angel, okay? He became a human being. It's interesting if you, if you, if you see the account in, in Luke, where Jesus was suffering, right? And he was praying, and it says he was praying drops of blood. Um, it said that an angel came and, and strengthened him. And uh, um, which is really interesting because God gave him help through an angel, but it wasn't like the angel came down and said like, okay, we'll call it all off. It's all good. Suffering's over. Let's, you know move on to happiness and rainbows and butterflies. Um, The angel was there to strengthen him in the suffering, to strengthen him through the suffering. But Jesus did not become an angel. He became a human being. And so we have Jesus who can come by our side. And um, it's human beings that he is helping. In particular, the children of Abraham, according to this verse. Now, Abraham is the father not just of the Hebrew people, he is the father of the people of faith, which includes you and me. So we are also children of Abraham. Um, Abraham placed faith in God as true to his promises, as impossible as they seemed to him. And we went through that in Genesis. I mean, think about God giving you a promise and not fulfilling it for 10 years, 15 years. I mean, I think we'd have trouble if God gave us a promise and it took longer than six months, you know, we'd start to doubt. But Abraham's faith stayed steady and said his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And then verse 17 says, um, therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Well, under the Old Testament system, on what was called the Day of Atonement, only the high priest could enter a place called the Holy of Holies once a year to sprinkle blood on what was called the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant for the sins of the people. But Jesus is a greater high priest. He has entered not a tabernacle or temple built with human hands, 
but he entered heaven itself and has offered his own sinless blood on behalf of his people. And we'll see that when we get to Hebrews 9. But to be a priest to the people, he had to be one of the people. He had to be a representative. He had to be a mediator. And he couldn't do that from a distance. He couldn't do that just as God. He had to do that by becoming a man. He is a faithful, merciful high priest because he can sympathize with the trials we go through and the temptations we face. And as a human being, he's endured these same sufferings. And he's faithful because he remained steadfast in his, in his obedience to God. He never wavered. And he's completely reliable for his people. And he made propitiation for the people, as it says, um, which just means that he satisfied the justice and wrath of God against our sin. That's what the word propitiate means. So lastly, verse 18 closes the chapter with these words, for because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now we don't know all the ways that Jesus was tempted. We know some of them, but we do know that he was tempted, as it says in Hebrews 4.15, in every respect as we are yet without sin. And one thing that we do know about his temptations is is uh, <clears throat> that one of Jesus' recurring temptations was to abandon the redemptive plan of God that God had laid out for him to fulfill in order to avoid the suffering that it required. And um, I, th- I think that's key, and I'll get to that in a minute. But um, you know that when he was in the wilderness, Satan um, called him to worship him in order to have the kingdom of the world now instead of waiting for them. So Satan was was tempting him to give up the redemptive plan that God had called him to. Um, His family, according to Mark 3, tried to pull him away from ministry, thinking he was losing his sanity. His own brothers didn't believe in him before the resurrection, and they were trying to get him to come to Judea so that he would gain a greater following by doing miracles there. But they were thinking more in terms of political advancement and popularity. You know, um, Peter... Um, In Matthew 16, um, when Jesus talked about how he needed to suffer, be arrested, tortured, and executed, Peter takes him aside and says, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You're thinking that to get ahead... You're thinking that for me to accomplish my purpose, I've got to go this other way and that I must not die. I must not suffer. I must not endure what was prophesied. But that is exactly what I have to do to fulfill the will of God. So Jesus understands and knows what it's like to face pressure and to be tempted, to be disloyal to one's calling when things get hard. We will find him our strong and sympathetic helper when we face the trials that threaten to shake our faith and weaken our loyalty to following Jesus no matter what. Those trials will come no matter what area we live in. And um, I think why that's, this is a very interesting point is because the next time you, know, you find yourself really in the fire of trials and temptations, which might even be right now, consider that the goal of the enemy is to get you to throw in the towel, to abandon God's plan for your life. And sometimes, sometimes he has won in that. 
Sometimes he has, um, he has gotten people to throw in the towel and abandon God's plan um, for their life. Simply to, in order to avoid the suffering or the hardship that you are experiencing. But I'm glad for those who did not throw in the towel. But now I can lean on them in my valleys of darkness. Because those who have been through the same deep trials that we encounter often turn out to be our greatest encouragers as we walk through valleys of deep darkness. And I know that you all have experienced that. Even in this little community, God has taken different ones through different valleys of darkness and you've walked through it. He's walked through them, those valleys with you. And because of that, you have been the recipient of God's um, comfort and you have been able to comfort others because of that. But never forget this. Um, even, even if that's not the case, and you, you know, I, I used to think sometimes like, um, boy, no one's ever gone through this thing that I'm going through. You know, just I'm the only one. Um, that's, 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 that's something that Satan really wants to get us to believe. Okay? But we should never forget this, that no one is as powerful, wise, and compassionate as Christ himself. Okay, even if we don't have someone right next to us in our life that's been through the same exact thing, Christ understands. His loyalty with us in our trials and temptations is indisputable. We can lean hard on him through whatever we're facing. Because as it says in the, in the word here, Jesus intercedes for us, Jesus sympathizes with us, and Jesus is there for us. We are not alone. So resist the temptation of the enemy to believe that you are alone. That's not reality. It might be the way you feel, but it's not the way things are. Jesus is our brother. He made us children of God through his suffering. He delivered us from death through his suffering. He became our merciful high priest through his suffering. This is the power of the cross. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear God, I, I'm just, um, you know, sometimes, you know, it, it just, it, you know, when you think of, when I think of all these verses and about, um, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces <clears throat> endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I'm like, why does it have to be that way? I, why can't it be um, that it's all, you know, eating cake and cookies and rainbows and butterflies and that's how, you know, it's all going to work out to complete us and to build endurance. But then, but then I realized that, like, we don't build endurance that way. We, we live in a broken world among broken people and there are going to be tragedies and there are going to be People that hurt us, we're going to hurt others. There's going to be things that happen to where we need endurance. We need patience. Um, or else we're just going to wilt, you know, when hard times come, when a natural disaster hits, when a tragedy strikes. So we need these things. And you knew that, God. So you, your plan, again, is best. And we just praise you for that.
And that's what you're, this writer of the Hebrews is trying to get across to these, these people that he's writing to because they are in the midst of a fiery furnace, Lord, themselves. Um, and they need to hear these words that you've been there and that you will be there with them through that. And it's all because of what you did on the cross. We, th- we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.